the times where I've had the biggest issues with my clients is when I did not openly communicate that I did not have time to dedicate full attention to them. One truck, one technician, if you're lucky, no building. Welcome to the stress of solo equine practice. And welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the FedEx Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I am your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and Dr. Kelly Zetunian is my guest, an equine practitioner and one of those behind the Sustainability in Equine Practice Seminar and Retreat, which at the time of this podcast was scheduled for October. Equine practitioners can get lonely out there, and Kelly and the other retreat founders want a better financial, emotional, and physical health life for them. I asked Kelly first, what's different about this demographic in our world of overworked, stressed out vets? I ran across you and got instantly interested because you are looking, everyone's, again, this podcast hasn't even come out yet, and I've already covered work-life balance from a number of people, but it's super unique because I think the demographics and the experience of equine practitioners might be different than the average veterinarian who is probably working in a place with more than one veterinarian who certainly has a team around them. A lot of them are solo. So maybe from your perspective in equine and thinking about this from an equine perspective, how is the work-life balance and the building of culture, how is that different for the equine practitioners that you talk to as opposed to what you imagine or when you do talk to small animal, companion animal practitioners? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for bringing it up. I mean, primarily... Most equine practitioners or a majority of equine practitioners are working alone, um, many without even, you know, a technician or a support team member in the truck driving around with them. So the culture is basically built on being alone and being really supportive of yourself. And I think a lot of practitioners feel alone or they feel like they don't have somebody to bounce ideas off of or really like share in some of the emotional and physical toll of the workday. So I would say there isn't a whole lot of work-life balance and that's the primary problem. And one of the reasons that people leave equine medicine is that there's just not a good balance because there isn't a support team surrounding them and their work on a daily basis. You know, it's interesting. You said maybe they have to be supportive of themselves. Is it your impression? Because I know you're kind of trying to build programs and CE and resources for people who maybe are on their own. Do you think they are being supportive of themselves? So I I know maybe in the sense you were saying they're their entire support staff, but I wonder if they are in fact being supportive of their experience or it's easy for them to get lost and not have anything, again, as you said, not have anybody to bounce ideas off of and be a little harsher on themselves than they might need to be. Yeah, it's really easy to get lost. And I see it all the time. And this is one of the reasons that my colleagues and I who started this retreat really wanted to bring attention to it. You know, I you're on the Facebook pages, you're on social media, and you you start to see all these people kind of reaching out for help. And, and they almost seem like they're being gaslighted by either the industry or clients or, or sometimes themselves, where, you know, they're beating themselves up for not staying out and answering that call at three o'clock in the morning, or, you know, not accepting Saturday calls. And, 
boundaries is the other big, you know, part of that work-life balance. And I think many of these equine practitioners have felt for the longest time that they really need to prove themselves and the way that they prove themselves or the way that success is defined in the industry is by how busy we are and how many emergencies we see and how late into the night we are and how long we go without eating or drinking or stopping to go to the bathroom. And um, that has been the culture of, you know, your worth is how hard you're working and how much you are beating yourself up versus, you know, your worth being providing really quality care and medicine while also providing yourself and your family with that balance and the other aspects of life that really make it fulfilling and uh, make the work worth doing. I think you can get all the things done, but then maybe there are expectations about how they're done that you can't match. So like, again, you want to serve all the patients and you want to help all the clients and maybe they are, maybe your predecessor, they're all used to a certain level of availability or a certain level of care. And you're trying to navigate that against your sense that, wow, maybe this isn't right for me, or maybe things have gotten worse because, you know, there aren't enough vets in my area to support me and help me out on these Saturday things. I mean, if they don't call me, there's nobody else to go. Is it setting expectations for clients, setting expectations for yourself, setting expectations for your understanding of what care can be and when can it be? How do they navigate that nexus where all those things crash together? (laughs) It's all of the above. So So I think it really, it has to start with each individual because, you know, what work-life balance looks like or work-life integration looks like for me may be different for what it looks like for you or any other practitioner out there. And so to me, it starts with what do I want my day, my week, my life to look like? How much time do I want to dedicate to work? What are my other passions and how much time do I want to dedicate to them? And how do I then make that happen while also serving all of these clients? And I think you have to start within so that you know what your end goal is. And then you have to really set those expectations with clients. And I realize that that's not an easy task. I know from experience, you know, when I started my own practice eight years ago, I said yes to everything under the sun (laughs) because... I needed that business. I wanted to grow. I had to get the ball rolling and kind of get to that tipping point in number of patients and number of clients where then I felt like, okay, the revenue is coming in. I'm able to you know, hire the support staff. Now it's time to really start renegotiating who I want to work with and how I want to work. And Can I ask about that? Was yours a brand new practice or were you brought in under someone else at any time? It was a brand new practice. Okay. And I am curious about that because I think the advice you gave is great for people, which is you need to know what you want. When you came into practice, did you have the impression, I know what this is going to be like, because this is going to be a stretch of one or two or three years where I'm going to have to take everybody and do everything. And then I can take a beat and set up the plan I have. Or how did that evolve in those first year or two? I started the practice somewhat quickly due to a quick departure from my prior clinic. (laughs) Okay. And did you go someplace far away or relatively close? I didn't move. I was right next door. Okay. And so I will say like, it wasn't very well thought out because it (laughs) all kind of happened quickly, but I knew that I wanted to be here. You know, I was established in the area. I just bought a home with my husband. He was established as a small animal surgeon in the area. Like we were not moving. So I knew 
you know, especially to stay and to be right there where I wasn't tapping into a brand new market, I knew that I needed to, you know, kind of just say yes and see see kind of where the chips fell and take on, you know, the clients that wanted to join or new clients that were available and interested. And so I really have to say, you know, I didn't start thinking about what I really wanted for myself for the first couple of years to my own detriment in some ways. And so I think that's maybe also why I'm I'm so passionate about really trying to push for these things because I didn't do it for myself. So, you know, it's easier said than done, but if there's some support there and a little bit of a building block, I'd love to be able to kind of provide that to other people. Okay. So I am curious about that vision setting thing. I think a lot of people wind up, you're kind of, you're, you're pushing through school, you're pushing through school and then you're in practice and you're focused on the medicine. And this idea that you also need to think about what kind of practitioner do you want to be and what kind of medicine do you want to do? I think everybody sort of pours out and almost everybody winds up in a situation where they're, they hit the ground running and they don't have time to do that self-reflective stuff. Is that what you have found in talking to equine practitioners as you've consulted or talked to your colleagues that people generally don't start their career with this? I'm going to take a breath and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to journal about this in a serious way. And I'm going to think yeah. about does like nobody do that and you wish they did or really it has to happen after you've kind of been through some fire and then you come out and you know you have to do it? Nobody does it. We are so goal oriented, you know, from you hear half of the people, if you ask like, well, why did you get into veterinary medicine? Nine times out of 10, it's I grew up loving animals. I wanted to have a job that I was passionate about. I don't want to work with people, you know, all of those typical <laughs> responses, right? right? And never was it, you know, I want to have a career where I can reflect on my passions and there's so many different avenues that you can pursue in veterinary medicine. And this is going to allow me to, you know, train for a marathon or do all of these other things. You just, you never hear that. You hear, right. I always wanted to be a vet. I powered through school. I got good grades. I did all the extracurricular activities. Everything is so goal oriented and there's almost this letdown when you get into it. You know, there's the excitement of the first couple of years that you're practicing. It's almost like that honeymoon period of like new yeah. cases and your adrenaline kicks in because you're, you haven't seen something before and you really have to work through it. And then I think practitioners start to hit their stride and then there's sort of this, well, where do I go from here? Uh, and it's kind of hard, you know, when you just goal after goal, you've met them and attained them. Or most of us are type A individuals in veterinary medicine people start to flounder a little bit. You know, what am I actually doing here? And what else do I want to be doing outside of work? Uh, so I do think it would be great if we were doing it sooner. I think it does kind of take that little bit of a letdown where things are not new and magical before <laughs> it becomes a priority. And, you know, we hit that five-year mark in veterinary, in, in equine medicine, I should say. And I think it's a staggering, like 50% of individuals who graduate as equine students are out of the equine industry by year five. So this is a major problem. This would be anecdotal because I think there's people, I mean, there's always people trying to gather data from all the people who peel out of why did you leave? Why did you leave? And there's so many reasons why people switch careers. And some of them are maybe unhealthy and they could have stayed if they'd figured out how to be healthier. And some of them are healthy. You know what? This wasn't for you. You found something you want to do better, which is all wonderful but there's a worry about why it's happening. Anecdotally, 
Do you have a feeling from people why, again, you wanted to do this work? You wanted to set up this live event and you wanted to provide this kind of this resource for people to to think about these things because you suspect what the big reason. I mean, do you have a, one big reason that worries you that you think yeah. oh, these people are burning out because of this? We actually have beyond anecdotal there. AVMA worked with AAEP to put together some really great surveys to find out why doctors leave. Yeah. And this is a recent study, 647 respondents. And the number one reason was lifestyle and number of work hours required. Secondarily, it was emergency or on-call duty, low salaries and compensation compared to small animal counterparts or, you know, the world at large. Yes. Mental health and stress. And then the culture of the equine veterinary industry. Those are the top five. So as we approached this sustainable equine practice seminar, we looked at those top five reasons that people are leaving. And we said, you know, what conversations can we have? Who can we bring in from within or outside of the industry to talk about those things and try to provide some tangible tools for practitioners to use so that they don't get to that five-year mark and just say, I'm out. We want people that are in it to really start being, you know, changing their behaviors and encouraging new people to come in and change theirs as well. I love that you said change. their. It's the hardest thing in the world because I'm thinking about those things you talked about feel like some of them feel like you could change them on a dime. Well, if you're all working too many hours hey, next week, let's just set up a new thing where none of us work that many hours. Or if we're having trouble with a toxic team member or whatever it happens to be, these clients we're struggling with, you know what? We're going to fire these clients. We're going to sit down and talk to these team members about it. It always sounds easy to talk about it. You're trying to provide something more than just this is a doable thing. What kind of resources were you envisioning to help people get over the hump of actually making those changes? Right. Yeah. So um, some of the really exciting things that we are going to be focusing on in this seminar that I think touch on the different areas, we are going to have a talk on boundaries and really, you know, what I talked about before, helping people set up what their day looks like and how they can communicate those expectations and in a professional way, share with their clients, share with their staff, how they're going to be changing the schedule to honor some of those boundaries that they need to create and some of that balance that they need to create. So we're going to start with what do you want? Here's how you can communicate that with your team and with your clients in a way that they accept, you know, it can't just be a, I'm out. I'm not going to answer my phone. See you later. (laughs) I know I have been for the last five years and that's an expectation. We have to slowly start training our clients. Hey, this is the new normal and this is why. And clients respect that they want us to be happy and healthy so that we're there for the worst, you know, in the toughest of times. Uh, So that's one. Another um, with emergency and on-call duty is a discussion of alternative work schedules and, you know, how we can actually look at, you know, instead of the nine to five Monday through Saturday, bringing on somebody part-time or utilizing our technicians in a way that helps us to have a little bit of downtime and gives them a bit more autonomy. We have a yoga coach coming in uh, (laughs) to help us with, you know, kind of not only the mental health and taking that time to reflect and and give ourselves a little bit of that break, but also some physical help. You know, people also leave. I didn't mention it because it's a little bit lower on the list, but people leave because they get injured. And that's one of the other big differences from small animal 
medicine. So we'll focus on a little bit of how we can help protect our bodies from some of the general wear and tear. And then you brought up, you know, the toxic you know, coworker. Sometimes we have toxic clients that we need to get rid of. We're also going to have a disc discussion and I'm using disc to, you know, honor different communication styles and uh, train in how to understand what your communication style is and, and how you might need to flex a little bit to interact more collaboratively with your coworkers and clients. And that disc, I don't remember what it stands for. Do you? It, but it is a, it's a look at how different people communicate differently in the workplace and in their life. Exactly. So yeah. everybody has sort of, they fall on the spectrum of these different personality types. And um, depending upon your personality type, you essentially, you know, take things that people say in a different way or people perceive you a little bit differently based on how you communicate with them. So dominance, influence, steadiness, and conscientiousness is what the the DISC stands for. And people generally, I mean, oftentimes lean on one of those. It's been successful or it's what they're used to. They tend to lean. They have, um, they kind of have their fallback, especially in times of stress or in, you know, quick decision-making, which right now the industry, you know, we're just so busy and certainly in emergency situations, we tend to revert to a particular style. And so focusing in on, you know, how do you act? How are you perceived in maybe like the worst or the most stressful of situations? And how might you change that a little bit or be a bit more conscious of, of how you're being perceived? Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. I love all those topics. And I wonder if we could just chip into each one a little bit just to see sort of a preview of what you talk about or a preview of how in the years experience you have had as an equine practitioner, you've managed that. And I was wondering about the very first one with boundaries. And you said this beautiful thing at the end of that, which is you can communicate this in a professional way. Clients really appreciate it at a time when you set boundaries, whether it was because you were finally busy enough or so busy, you had to sometimes had to push people away. So you had to set boundaries or you had team members who could, you could fall back on. And so you could start creating these things. How would you relay that professionally? And were you worried about just getting pushback? If you, without talking to them, feel your clients are used to an expectation of a level of service and availability, and you're going to change that, it sounds like you say there's a healthy, productive way that they appreciate to say this. How did you find that? Or did you find it or have to experiment to find it? 
had to experiment for sure. And I think what I have found, and I hope people, this resonates, is the times where I've had the biggest issues with my clients is when I did not openly communicate that I did not have time to dedicate full attention to them. So, you know, they're, as an example, I had a busy day where I had, you know, a consult scheduled and a, a Zoom presentation scheduled. And I had these messages being pinged into me and I didn't turn my do not disturb on. And I was sort of giving very quick, brief snippets of a response back to somebody who was in the middle of a pre-purchase exam for their horse. So I tend to be a D on that disc scale that we talked about, which is very quick, like bullet style, everything's good. <laughs> and it was perceived by this client as I wasn't giving them the time of day and I was sort of blowing them off. Yeah. And it didn't go over well. It was a great client. And, you know, here they are making this really big emotional and financial decision. And I wasn't available to them. And so I reflected on that and had a conversation with them and and really cleared it up with an explanation of, you know, hey, this was what I was in the middle of doing as I was trying to respond to you. And moving forward, we changed that. So in fact, this morning, I knew that there was a pre-purchase that was being decided on today. And I actually sent a proactive message to the trainer to say, I know that this is going on and you're trying to make a decision. I want you to know that I'm not going to be available between these hours. So I'd love to pop on a call with you right now to discuss the information we have available to us. And then I am available after this time, uh, you know, to answer any follow-up questions. And I'm really excited because I'm going to be on this podcast and I'm talking about ways that we can do better for, you know, the industry as a whole. And it was a completely different response than the prior time that we had this interaction, which was, why aren't you paying attention to me? This time it was like, thank you for being proactive about it. Let's have a chat, you know, go get them, go have fun on this podcast. So just little changes like that. People are in your corner. Clients will be in your corner. They'll be rooting for you and they'll really appreciate that you are being transparent with your availability. When you were describing the initial situation, I could absolutely see how both this one person's making this really difficult decision and they need you to be available. And on the other side, you are busy with something else and you are doing your communication style version of availability. I'm trying to answer your questions in as short as I can because I'm doing something else. Everybody thinks they're doing the right thing. And again, as you said, it was miscommunication. Yep. I mean, that's what it comes down to nine times out of 10 for every problem that we have is just (laughs) not clearly communicating your availability or your expectations or, you know, what you can offer to somebody, whether it's personal, professional, you know, this is what I have to give to you today. And these are, you know, these are my setbacks. So do you remember, was that a conversation you couldn't even imagine? Because did it sound confrontational or difficult back when you first started or at times when you were super busy and hungry? Did you think about, I should do this, but I'm not, or was it not even, didn't even cross your mind? It's super difficult. You never want to turn somebody off. And there's this fear that, gosh, if I don't answer this question right now, or if I'm not available to them, when they feel that I need to be available to them, they're going to leave and go somewhere else. And that did happen, you know, but I think at the end of the day, kind of being true to setting some of those boundaries and and trying to make time for other passions 
is really important. And um, I saw a post the other day on Facebook and it just rang true. And it was essentially as soon as you get hurt or as soon as you decide to, you know, close shop and retire, do these things, people scatter like flies, you know, or they, they just, they spread to the wind and they go their separate ways and there's really minimal loyalty. And so we sometimes need to remember that, you know, you just have to kind of let it go and be true to yourself because 20 years, 25 years from now, if all you've ever done has been a yes, you know, man or woman and done everything for everyone else, because you felt like that was the only way to survive. That is what is going to continue propagating this really terrible, terrible culture and expectation. Well, so communication, that probably leads into one issue that equine practitioners face talking about this on-call situation. The old cliche is that, I mean, part of the reason why some people went in an equine and dropped out, just as you found in the, they found in those survey results, is this fact that you're kind of emergency all the time. You're always available to people. The cliche James Harriet thing, where whenever the animal's giving birth, whenever the issue is, you have to be the one. You're the only doctor in town, so you have to be the one to help. How did you, was it staffing that allowed you to turn off your own on-call? How did you finally, what was the first step you took to try to manage any of that? Yeah. I, when I was by myself, I actually created a partnership with another solo practitioner in the area and we shared on call and uh, we, it's well documented in a number of the AAP conventions where these, these groups get together and they, you know, basically share an on-call schedule and they have this, you know, written or unwritten agreement that you see the emergency, you send the case right back to the other practitioner, much like an emergency clinic and small animal, you know, does the primary emergency triaging, gets the patient stabilized, refers it back to the general practitioner, the, the regular vet the next morning. And so that's how I started. And, and then slowly as the practice built up enough, uh, added on additional associates so that we could, you know, spread out the, the workload a little bit more hands make shorter work, I guess. And <laughs> right. we created a, a situation where we could all share in that emergency, back each other up. Everybody has downtime. Um, everybody has, you know, their weekends that they have off. And um, it's nice to just know that there's more than one person out there. Another great way that I've seen it done that I, I haven't done myself, but there are other practices that I've worked with who actually specifically hire an individual to cover emergency calls at night. And so that is their job. That is what they're paid to do. It's a really nice situation for you know the practice that hires them because all of those other associates that are working really hard throughout the day can have their nights off and catch up on their medical records and everything yeah. else. And it also you know, was a service that I utilized on occasion when we were down in numbers or all wanted to go to an event, you know, as a team together and (laughs) coverage, we've leaned on our referral centers to cover emergencies for us and have had really great working relationships with them. So we know that our patients are taken care of, but that we, we see those clients come back to us when it's all said and done. So this might tie into what you said before at the end of the last one, which I I thought was a really important thought, which is you're trying, you're reaching out and you're trying to hold on to these clients. But the reality is at any moment, those clients can drift somewhere else. So I, that's probably a good attitude to, to give what you can, but to know that, 
you know, these people are not your family and they're not sort of, you're not, you're not part of your pod. They're, they're people that you're helping. Were people in that sense, when you join with this person, there's always a fear. The other thing that keeps people from building these relationships with other practitioners in the area is there were, so they're worried about poaching. So is that, was that ever a worry where there's some doctors you've heard who like, you know, there are doctors in the area, they will not do this because they're worried that one client will like the other client more when they drop in. Or does anybody worry about that? You do worry about it. It was a concern that we had, and I am uh, a big fan of pre-mortems. And so we <laughs> had a candid conversation before we started, you know, started this more formalized on-call schedule together. And we said, you know, we, we came up with some of those kind of scary scenarios. Well, what if this person actually wants to work with you instead of me? How, right. do we, how do we go forward with that? What happens if you have a client who I just cannot work with? It's it's not a good relationship. It seems unhealthy. I don't feel comfortable going there. How do we handle those situations? And we had really candid conversations and we had clients that moved between the two of us um, as we were practicing. And the only thing that we asked was we essentially had sort of a, um, a template response, which was, thank you very much for recognizing the care that we provided. You know, you need to know that you might still see Dr. X on emergency because we share that coverage. And it's important to me that our relationship is maintained. If you'd like to make a switch, you need to reach out to Dr. X and, you know, explain that to them and request that the records be released. So it kind of put, it put it back on the clients. And (laughs) when I did it, they really appreciated the fact that we had this bond and this professionalism that wanted to maintain a really cohesive availability of emergency coverage. And a couple people said, you know what, you're right. If I need a second opinion, I'll call you because I know you have a good working relationship or you know, other people would say, I so appreciate that you're doing that. I'll message Dr. X and explain to them, you know, why I'd like to move. Yeah. And it worked out great. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. It was an honor to share it with you. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. Want a little more? You are in luck. An extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community. You can learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, I just want you to know, I appreciate you.